in Acts chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verse 16 through 40, so it's another overlap passage where we'll pick up a little bit of last week's passage, but we're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter today. And I want to start by reading the text and just making some comments as we go through, then we'll look at our notes. So Acts chapter 16, verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. Now, we've talked about that section. One thing we didn't talk about is why Paul was annoyed at this woman yelling this out, because she was actually yelling the truth. They, they were servants of the Most High God, and they were telling people how to be saved. Why would that not be a good thing? Well, it was not a good thing for the same reason that Jesus didn't want demon-possessed people calling out the same information, because... Jesus didn't want, Paul doesn't want, God doesn't want, nor do any of these people need an endorsement from Satan or one of his followers. That endorsement would bring confusion, not clarity. And the motives of the fortune teller were not the same motives as Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. These folks were trying to bring people to God, even though she was proclaiming truth, her motive was to keep people from God. And so they didn't want anything to do with that, so he commanded the demon to leave, and that was the end of that. Verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. What was the custom that they were advocating? What were they doing that the Romans found so detestable? The Christians of the day, even in this early stage, had a lot of freedom to practice their Christianity as long as it didn't affect anybody. Now that's sort of true today. People are happy to let us Christians come together, be a part of a church, pray, do the things that we believe in, but they ask us to do them in our church and in our home and not bring them to the marketplace, not bring them to school, not bring them to the ball field. They want us to practice our religion, but practice it privately. And the Romans kind of had that same approach. As long as you're not affecting us politically or economically, you can do whatever you want to do. But these guys were affected economically, and so they brought it to the attention of the magistrates, and the magistrates came, and the, the, the accusation was they're, they're advocating customs unlawful. Well, the Romans had so many gods, you couldn't count them. They had gods for everything. Every need they had had a different god, and they believed that they had to keep all the gods happy in order to maintain their lifestyle, achieve the things they wanted to achieve, for this, the growing season to, to grow the crops, for the rainy season to provide the rain, all these things. And so they were polytheistic, 
And the idea that anyone would only worship one God was ludicrous to them. How could one God provide everything that was needed? They would actually, at one point in time, call them atheists, because in their mind, to only worship one God was to worship no gods, because that was, that was uncalled for. So this was the accusation brought. The motive was they're costing us money. They've now impacted our culture economically. So now we're going to call them, and so we're going to get their, the Romans' attention. So verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer commanded the guard to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Probably not a large jail, but the most secure place in the jail was in the middle. So he put them in the middle of the jail, and he shackled their feet, and it was in, incomprehensible that they would escape from that. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and sing, singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. We don't know how many were there. We don't know why they were there, but they were listening. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Why would he kill himself? if the prisoners were escaping, because that's what would happen to him at the hands of other soldiers. In his mind, taking his own life, falling on his own sword, was better than what the other soldiers would do to him for not maintaining his duty. Verse 28, But Paul shouted out, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's interesting that he even knew the language, what must I do to be saved. He was probably listening to their prayers and their hymns and their conversations. Verse 31, they, they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. They immediate, and immediately, he and all his household were baptized. So I want you to see a sequence here. This is all one evening. Uh, at midnight, so we have a time frame. At midnight, uh, the earthquake takes place. He finds them still there. He says, what must I do to be saved? They answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. This was... Not a common thing for a household to be saved, although we do find it regularly. And this is not a promise that if you get saved or the husband gets saved or the dad gets saved, that everyone else will get saved, although that is also common. This is a prophecy. You and your household will be saved. We have denominations today um, that believe that if a father gets saved, the entire house is saved. And they practice what they call family baptism. So dad gets saved, says, I want to be baptized. They line up the whole family, the wife and all the kids. They all get baptized, and they consider the entire family saved because dad got saved. 
Well, that doesn't line up with Scripture, and it, it doesn't line up with baptism. It, it's, it's a false teaching, but there's an entire denomination that practices this. This is one of the places they get that from because they think this is a promise being made to everyone, but it's actually a promise or, or better said, a prophecy made to this man. Then they go home, they share the gospel, and the household is saved, and they're baptized that very night. Okay? Verse 34, The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God he and his whole household. Still nighttime. Okay, they got baptized in the dark. Verse 35, the next time marker. When it was daylight, so morning, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with this order. So at some point, they actually went back to the jail. They, they never escaped. They went back to the jail, took their places. The magistrates sent the officers, and they said, release these men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens. So they actually broke some pretty standard Roman laws by doing that and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out of here. You put us here publicly and in a humiliating way, so you humble yourselves and you come walk us out. You come escort us out. So verse 38, the officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed because they could get in a lot of trouble. They came to appease them and escorted them out from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison... They went to Lydia's house, remember that was their headquarters, where they met with the brothers and sisters, Lydia's family and others who had been saved in this period of time, and encouraged them. Then they left. Speaking of the time frames here, um, we're talking a week or two from the start, from when they arrived in Philippi and when they left Philippi. So that's, that's our text, that's the that's the narrative that we read. Let's look at the notes and let's look more at the storyline. Just ten things I want to pull out of the text to mention again or draw emphasis to. Number one, Paul and Silas were jailed because their religious activities interfered with someone's ability to make money. Did you see that? Their religious activities interfered with someone else's ability to make money. No one cared what they said or what they did until they cast out this demon and now it was costing somebody money who was important. Maybe even cost the town money because she was somewhat of, of an attraction. I would dare say this is still true today. People don't care what religion we believe or what religion we practice until our faith practice gets in the way of their living their life or them making their money. Just this morning I wrote down a couple things that seem super obvious to me. We're in the middle of an abortion debate. The Supreme Court is about to make a decision. A decision that's probably going to overturn a 50-year-old decision allowing abortion nationwide without almost any restriction. States have tried to step in and they've been shut down. Now this will open the door for states to make their own decisions. And Planned Parenthood and abortion providers are up in arms, literally, 
literally, in our own state, uh, a caring pregnancy center has been torched and, and arsoned and lit on fire. Uh, a bomb went off somewhere else. People have been threatened. This is happening. Why are they up in arms? Is it because they believe wholeheartedly that the morally right thing to do is to kill children? And they believe morally and wholeheartedly that the right thing to do is to allow moms and dads to decide they don't want a child that's growing inside them? No. It's not really a moral thing. Matter of fact, the main argument back in the day was overpopulation. Roe versus Wade was decided on the, on the basis of a belief that the world would be overpopulated soon. And economically, we couldn't handle that. Socially, we couldn't handle that. It was an economic thing. It's written in the decision. You can read it. Now, what are we up in arms about? Abortion is a money-making industry. You talk to people who have left, and they say, what's the motivation? They say, it's money. Some, even in the business, will admit it's about the money. Our religious beliefs and practices, our moral code that we're trying to share with the world, is getting in the way of their finances. Nobody out there thinks pornography is morally acceptable. Nobody's really going, hey, this is great, everyone's like, good for you. No, nobody's saying that. But so much money is being made that nobody is also doing much to stop it in the world. Politics. All about money today. That's the great fear of sending a good person to Washington, is that they're going to be corrupted. This is all happening. We are being suppressed on many occasions because our religious practices are getting in the way of someone else making money. So, what happened in a really obvious way to Paul and Silas, is still happening today. Things haven't changed. Number two, public opinion caused them to be beaten with rods and thrown into jail. It was not part of Paul's plan to be beaten with rods and thrown into jail. He didn't say, hey, I'll bring the rods, let's go. God didn't say, hey, Paul, Silas, I got news for you. I need you to, I need you to go be beaten with rods and thrown in jail. At which Paul would have said, should we bring the rods or will they have their own? Paul was a willing participant, whatever God was going, was going on. But the public reacted. Oh yeah, they're costing us money. We need to do something about that. And the public got on board. We see that happening today. Public opinion drives so many things. Companies that have no stand on an issue will all of a sudden take a stand so they won't be targeted. We have this going on today. Teachers are asked to say things and, and do things and, and, and portray things they don't believe in. Um, all across the board in many, many avenues. Public opinion is driving much today, just like back then. Number three, what was their response? This is incredible. They, they were in jail. They had been beaten. What was their response in jail? Paul and Silas prayed and sang hymns well into the night. It was midnight when the earthquake took place. They had been praying and singing hymns. And they weren't praying silently. They were praying out loud because people were listening. They weren't mumbling their songs under their breath. They were belting them out for everyone to hear, unashamed. And why would they do that? Why would that be their response? What was their motivation? Well, I have three possibilities. Number or A, it was a witnessing tool. 
Paul and Silas were all about sharing the gospel, they literally had a captive audience. Everyone there was in jail. Probably most of them had shackles on. They were chained. And so they weren't going anywhere. And they weren't moving to another room. They weren't going to get away. And Paul and Silas prayed and sang. I don't know what their prayers were. Lord, be with us all. Bless these people. We love you. We serve you. If this is what you want, this is what we do. We don't know what it was, but it was a chance to witness. People heard them sing, heard them pray. That may be why, or one of the reasons why nobody left when they could have walked out the door free. Uh, B, perhaps it was just worship. Maybe their attitude was, God brought us here. We don't know why, but he brought us here, so we are going to worship God. We're going to worship because it's the best response possible. We're going to sing, and we're going to pray. I don't know what song they sang, but that was their response. A witnessing tool, it was a chance to worship. C, perhaps it was a means to maintain their spiritual strength. Maybe they were battling a little bit of anger. Battling a little bit of, what did we do wrong? Battling a little bit of bitterness. Or, why God? Why would you allow this? Why was I beaten? I'm a Roman citizen. They're not supposed to beat Roman citizens. Maybe they were battling that, and the answer, the fix for it, was prayer and worship. Because when you pray and when you worship, you stir up the Spirit within you, and you gain strength. You proclaim your faith. You call out to God. And they may have literally said to themselves, listen, we're in jail, we've been beaten. The only thing we can do is turn to God. Let's call on Him for strength, let's pray for this strength and let's worship in song. Maybe they did all three motives. Maybe they were all present. That was their response. And that response should kind of make us think about what our responses to some of these things should be. Should I argue louder? Should I protest more often? What should I do? Maybe praying and worshiping is the answer. Maybe living my Christian life in front of the very people that are trying to hurt me is the answer. Something along those lines is probably more in line with what God wants. But number four, as we move through the story, a miraculous earthquake made escape simple and direct, yet no one left. Don't miss the miracle. The very foundations of the jail were shook. That means the bottom part that holds it all together shook. Yet, the roof didn't collapse, the walls didn't cave in, stones didn't fall on them, apparently no one was injured, apparently the guard who fell asleep was able to sleep through most of it. The very foundation shook. It shook so violently that the door swung wide open and the chains fell off their hands. That's a normal response to an earthquake, right? Shackles unlocking, doors unlocking, doors swinging open. This was a miracle that took place. I don't know how it happened. Maybe a whole bunch of angels ran in and that caused the earthquake. And they all opened their doors and unlocked the shackles and then ran out. That would be cool. Maybe God just did it and put the earthquake there to wake them up and get their attention. I don't know what happened, but that's, that was the result. So a miraculous earthquake took place, but no one left. I'm curious why no one left. I don't have a great answer, except maybe the prayer and worship had an effect. 
Maybe most of the people in the jail were there with Paul and Silas. Maybe they were also arrested. We don't know. Moving on, number five, though, Paul and Silas intervened to stop the head guard from killing himself. Apparently they could see what was going on. They called out, don't do it. We're all still here. They knew why he would do it. And your notes, um, he had not treated them in any way that deserved such a response. He didn't say, I'm sorry they beat you. I wish they hadn't of. Let me get you some water and some rags. He didn't say, well, you have to be in this cell, but I won't shackle you. Here's a bench. Try to get some sleep. He didn't do anything but his job, which was to put them in jail, shackle them, and make sure they didn't leave. So he didn't do anything to deserve their mercy, but he received it. B, uh, he had no expectation they would be there. His, his immediate reaction was, the doors are open. They're gone. If you can get a door open, you can get a shackle off. And either someone came in and opened the doors and let them out, or somehow they were able to escape themselves. But one way or the other, open doors in a prison means prisoners are loose. He assumed that he was too late, he had slept through it. The best thing to do was to kill himself, see, because it would be a self-mercy killing. Him falling on his own sword would be much less painful than what the Romans would do to him for a dereliction of duty. But Paul and Silas stopped it, moving on, number six. Because of Paul and Silas, because of their evening of worship, their refrain from escape and intervention when he was about to kill himself, the jailer responded with the desire to be saved himself. And I want you to see that he responded. He reacted. Because of what had been happening and because of what was currently happening, his response was, Tell me how to be saved. Like, you guys have been praying. You guys have been singing. You guys have been talking about God. You had your chance to escape. Obviously, God did this so you could escape. You didn't. You saved my life. Tell me what this is all about. How, how do I be saved? In our own world today... Are people responding to us? Are they responding to my words, the language I use, the phrases I use, the way I talk to people, the things I talk about, the subjects I talk about? Are they responding to my words? Are they responding to my actions? My, my lack of bitterness, my lack of revenge, my lack of slander, uh, my loving actions, my patient actions, are they responding to those? Are they responding to my ministry? Are they responding to the things I do for God? The jailer responded to what Paul and Silas had been all about. The challenge for us is to be something others can respond to. Our changed life should at least bring questions. Number seven, Paul and Silas shared the gospel with the jailer and his family who were all saved. They were all saved. A, a bit of a miracle there, if you ask me. But when dad comes home, and he says, wife and kids, get out of bed. I know it's midnight, but this is important. You need to meet these people and hear what happened. There was this huge earthquake, shook the entire jail. All the doors opened, all the chains fell off. Nobody left. And when I was about to kill myself and leave you a widow and leave you guys orphans, they stopped me from doing it. By the way, they're Jews. 
by the way, everyone's mad at them. They saved my life. I believe in their God, and I, I want them to tell you about him too. And they did, and they all got saved. So they all got saved. Number eight, the magistrates tried to quietly release Paul and Silas. By the way, this is like the minor part of the story. This is not the exciting part. This is not the, wow, I can't believe that happened part. This is like, we gotta got to tell you what happened. Can't leave you hanging there. The magistrates tried to release them quietly after Paul and Silas had gone back to the jail with the jailer, after he had cleaned them up and fed them and they were baptized, all in the night between midnight and daylight. Number nine, Paul and Silas, then after their release, met with the believers at Lydia's house. It says, after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, their headquarters, where they met with the brothers and sisters. That would be her family and others who had been saved. There probably were others, probably not mobs of people, but others, and encouraged them. How did they encourage them? They just told their story. Hey, look what happened. Let me tell you the story. First of all, we were doing our thing, and this crazy lady was following us, and she kept yelling the stuff out. We tried to ditch her. We tried to hide. This went on for four, five, six days. Finally, I had it. I turned around, and I said, demon, leave her, and it happened. We thought it was over, but everybody got upset. They put us in jail. They beat us, first of all. Boy, did that hurt. They put us in jail, shackled our feet. We decided we're going to sing, and we're going to pray. So we sang and we prayed and everybody listened and then there was this earthquake and everything shook and only thing that happened was the doors all swung open and the chains all fell off, all of us, but we stayed. I don't know why everybody stayed, but we stayed. And, and then the jailer was going to kill himself and we stopped it. And guess what? He says, tell me about your God. So we told him about our God. Then we went to his house and he cleaned us up and we fed him. And while that was happening, we told his whole family about Jesus. They all accepted him as, as Savior. And then they were all baptized. And then we went back to the jail. And, and then we were released. And here we are. Isn't that awesome? All these people got saved. And all it took was a beating. And, and then this earthquake. It was so cool. Oh, and by the way, we're going to have to leave town now. But guess what? It's not just you anymore. Now there's this entire other family of believers. And you guys need to get together, and you guys are going to form a church. And that's, I believe, exactly what verse 40 says. They met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. I believe they formed a church. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, in Paul's greeting to the church in Philippi, he says, to all God's people at Philippi, together with the elders and deacons. That means they formed a church. At some point in time, there was a church to write a letter to, not that far away. I believe this was the formation of the church, and that's number 10 of your notes. The church in Philippi was formed. It was basically formed with two families and maybe some stragglers, maybe some other people who came along. So a church was formed. So that's, that's the storyline, and we've talked about how it inter interacts with us a little bit. How about the bigger picture? Let's step back a little farther and look at it again. Number one, under that category, Paul and Silas were only in Philippi for about a week or two. We don't know how long they were there before he went to the river to look for believers. Less than a week probably went on Saturday when they would have been in the synagogue if they had one. 
So less than a week until he meets Lydia and that family gets saved. We don't know exactly how many days this woman followed them around yelling. That would be several, probably again less than a week. That day after the, he cast out the demon, they were put in jail. That night, the earthquake took place. In the night, the family was saved and baptized, and the next morning they were released. So we have about two weeks we can account for. So one, two, three weeks, this entire story takes place. In that period of time, number two, Lydia and, Lydia and her family believed. The jailer and his family believed. The fortune teller and her associates, her owners and the, and the people in the city, they did not believe. So if you count the people, more people did not believe than believed. That should be expected. That is the norm. Narrow is the way that leads to heaven. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. We should never be surprised by that. But we have two families who believed and a whole bunch of people that didn't believe. But number three, God established a church in Philippi with two families in the gospel. And I've already read Philippians 1.1. They, they literally formed a church. So in other words, the big picture, number one there, Paul and Silas were harassed by a fortune teller, beaten with rods, and jailed, all so that God could, all, so that God could save two families and start a church. We need to have the same attitude. All serve God unwaveringly, regardless of the consequences. If Paul and Silas had got to jail and sat down and pouted, we really wouldn't blame them. They had been beaten with rods. That's got to hurt. I mean, it's, it's got to hurt. It's got to be humiliating. It's got to like take the wind out of your sail. But they said, this is what God wants. This is where God put us. This is what we're going to do. So that's the big picture. What are a couple questions? Two questions and a conclusion. Number one, what did someone else go through so that you could be saved today? What did someone else go through? Now, some of you have an answer that comes immediately to mind. Because your testimony would make a better movie than mine. Okay? Because you were saved out of a crisis out of danger, out of self-degradation. You were, you were saved out of something that could have torn you down. And, and you can say, there were people, my grandmother prayed for me every day while I humiliated her, while I embarrassed her, while I disappointed her, doing my own thing and ignoring everything she ever taught me. But she never stopped praying. And then one day, God got my attention. What did your grandma go through? What did your friends go through? What did your family go through? What did you go through? What did someone else go through? And then the next question following that is, what are you willing to go through so that someone else might be saved tomorrow? What are you willing to go through? In, in simple terms, are you willing to volunteer at BBS and have thousands of screaming kids running around you? More like 10, but feels like thousands. Uh, in, in total chaos for three hours, completely drains your energy and makes you wonder about getting out of bed in the morning? Are you, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to come to youth group and, and deal with teenagers who use the word whatever a lot and, and don't look you in the eye and, and perhaps don't care what you have to say at that moment in time? Are you willing to teach a Sunday school class and one day nobody shows up and one day 10 show up and you can't finish the lesson because there's too many, but they're not here the next Sunday. 
to finish it and you prepare and you have to be here early and you have to stay longer and all this stuff are you willing to go through that are you willing to come to Awana's which is much like vacation Bible school except it happens every week for an entire school year are you willing to endure that so that some children can hear about Jesus and and hear the gospel and how to be saved and seeds can be planted and some even give their life to Christ while you're there are you are you willing to go through that so they don't have to go through all the stuff someone else did in order to find Christ are you willing to go through that at another level are you willing to to endure someone else's bad habits absorb their coarse language set aside the smell that accompanies them realize that there's uncomfortable places you're going to find yourself because you're pursuing someone with the gospel are you willing to be there and endure these things so that they can become saved are you willing to be in prison and be beaten see are you willing to deal with that argumentative person that has a snide remark or an argument about everything they have very bad logic but proclaim it boldly they have unrealistic philosophies that they wholeheartedly believe in are you willing to keep having conversations and keep sharing the truth so that one day they can be saved are you willing to look past poor decisions and sinful lifestyles to see someone who needs the gospel Paul and Silas were willing to go through whatever God brought them. Are we? I hope so. I hope we're willing to. In conclusion, let's look at these four statements. Jesus did not sin with sinners, but he met with them. I hate it when people go, well, Jesus hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors. Yeah, he did. But he didn't hang out at the tax collecting booth and at the brothel or in the bar he met them where God interceded their lives together he met them where they were at he met them at the well he met them at the marketplace he met them, met them at the temple and on the road and God set up divine appointments and they met and they talked and Jesus shared truth with them he didn't hang out Jesus didn't sin with sinners we should not sin with sinners but he met with them. He interacted with them, which we should as well, with a loving attitude, knowing that we're here to share the gospel. Two, Paul did not sin with sinners, but he talked with them. He talked with the religious sinners, with the non-religious sinners. Again, he didn't hang out with them, but God brought them together. That's number three. Both were present where God took them, whether it was in jail, at the synagogue, or at the river for Paul whether it was at the, at the well or wherever with Jesus, both went where God took them and invested in who God gave them. God gave Paul and Silas a jailer and a bunch of prisoners. And he ministered to them. Then he ministered to the family. And he goes on and on. Wherever God took him, that's who he ministers to. When he's a, a captive again and he's on a ship, he ministers to the people on the ship. When he's speaking before a magistrate or a king or a judge, he witnesses to them. God will bring you into contact with people that need to be saved or need to have answers to questions when you're willing to be that person. 
He'll bring you together. And number four, this is pretty key. We too, like Paul and Silas, must be righteous in behavior and evangelistic in our relationships so that people can respond. So they can respond. If, if I can't say a sentence without swearing, and I can't tell a joke without it being a, a dirty joke or something like that, if, if I can't go to work without being greedy, if, if I can't take advantage of people, if I, if I can't live a life that reflects Christ, then no one's going to respond to the message I have. It's not how it works. I live a righteous life which gains me the opportunity to have a conversation which then allows someone an opportunity to respond. I live my life in front of others, my light shining brightly, so that people come to me with their questions. So that people come to me to find out why I'm different. Then I have the conversation which provides an opportunity. And we continue to provide the opportunities. And by the way, that is our responsibility. Whether they accept Christ or not is on them. And whether they get saved or not, that's in God's power. My job is to share the appropriate information. So, we have a story about a prison break that no one escapes. Matter of fact, they went, went home, got cleaned up, and came back. But in the process, two families got saved and a church was started because they were willing to go where God took them, willing to serve who God brought into their path, and they were unwavering in their faith. Great example. It's exactly who we need to be. That is what's going to make a difference in our community, and that's what's going to attract people to our church. So that's the challenge. Let's pray. Father, help us to be those kind of people. Help us to be the Pauls and Silases of our world. Help us to attract others to you. Holy Spirit, apply this to our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.